Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. It's good to see you. If I had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Pastor Craig, and uh, I think I've met most people, the new faces that came in this morning. We just want to say what an honor it is to have you worship with us. And uh, on behalf of my wife, who who did a mother-daughter weekend this weekend, so she's on her way back. But uh, I survived, so miracles do take place. I had two kids all weekend, and I survived, all right? Got them here early this morning. I don't mean I didn't have behavior issues, but nonetheless... They're here this morning, and uh, on behalf of Pastor Chad and Michelle, just our whole team, we're so delighted you're with us. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick. If you didn't receive a message card, I think everyone may have. And uh, if you, you want to turn in your, your version app, you can do that as well. And I want, I want, if you have a Bible, to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll look there in just a few moments. Hebrews chapter 9 is going to be one main text for this morning, but uh, we're in a series called In the Ring, How to Build a Relationship Worth Fighting For, a great message series for the month of February. And I would tell you, you know, in the midst of uh, our culture, probably the greatest onslaught from the enemy is against what we would call the family, what we would call marriage. And, um, you know, this is true not only for our lives individually, but true for our lives uh, corporately in terms of our marriage, that spiritual attack from the enemy reveals that the enemy is utterly convinced that what is on us will affect the community around us if it's not contained. And people say, well, I'm going through a lot of spiritual warfare right now. Well, praise God that you are because that means there's something of value inside of you. Last time I checked, thieves don't break into empty houses. I've never seen a thief break into an empty house. Thieves break into houses that have value. And so the very fact that we experience the attack in our marriage is because God knows how powerful marriage is. He created it. And how many of you know you have a 100% chance of success in marriage because God doesn't make mistakes? He doesn't make mistakes. And so we've been talking this month. Last week, Pastor Chad started off with a message called Circles Not Corners, which was remarkable, talking about the transformation to expect God when we are wanting change in our relationships. We want God to change the other person, but we need to understand that God will change us first. That we don't live from outside in, but we live from inside out. That the work and transformation God does internally works its way out in our relationships. And today, I want to preach to you a message that's going to be directed just for a few moments at marriages, but it's also to relationships. And so, we're going to start by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. You may have been at a a wedding before, and you heard the minister quote this text at a wedding in his sermonette, or her sermonette, but this is from the New Living Translation, where the Bible reads as such. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. I told the early gathering, that makes me think of Bubba and Forrest in the the fields of Vietnam and Forrest Gump. You know, put back to back, you lean against me, I lean against you. Y'all, maybe anybody seen Forrest Gump besides me? Okay, top movie all time. I mean, Tom Hanks is an amazing actor. Not, you know, a little bit different on the personal side, but you know, he's an amazing, amazing actor. And, And notice he says, we can stand back to back and we can conquer. And then he says, these are three are even better. Notice this, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So the best marriage you can have, he talks about this threefold cord. Let me just say something up front. Some of you may not be married in the room. I understand that. Okay. Some of you may have been married at one time, but you're now divorced. All we have is grace and mercy. That's all we have. But let me explain something to you from my perspective, okay? I'm directing this message today towards the married people in the room, 
But at the same time, if you're not married, I want you to hear something. I'm still talking to you, okay? I'm just gonna talk to the, to the married version of you. And the best mentorship that I've ever received in my life ministerially was when my senior pastor, Pastor Mitch, treated me like a lead pastor before I became one. Okay, treated me as such before I came. And so if you're not married in the room, what you get to do today is you get to invest and sow incredible seed into your future marriage. What greater opportunity. At the same time, you've got to understand this if you're single. Listen to me, singles. The, the, the future of your marriage will never go beyond the culture of your single heart. I'll say it again. The future of your marriage will never go beyond the culture of your single heart. In other words, the best married people were the best single people. Another way we can say this, if you're a leader in the church, you're a leader in your company, your church will never go beyond the culture of your own heart. So that is to say, if God's gonna do something in your marriage, God's gonna do something in your church, and your, what, that which God has put you over, or context over, or giving you stewardship over, it's gonna start down in here first. It's always gonna begin down in here first. And so if you're single, don't get bent out of shape. I'm talking to the married you, and you got amazing opportunity to sow into that future marriage. Now, with that being said, everybody I meet, at least we'll say most people, wanna have a good marriage. Like nobody goes into marriage saying, man, I hope our marriage sucks. You know what I'm saying? I hope we have the worst marriage on the planet. We all wanna have good mar marriage, but the problem is, is you, you don't get to have uh, a, a good marriage until you really define what a good marriage is. And most people, when you talk to them, they define a good marriage as one really good one plus one even better one. And usually you hope you're the one really good one and your spouse is the even better one, right? But that's not the definition of a good marriage. The definition of a good marriage is one really good one plus one really good one plus a perfect third one. That's marriage. Marriage is not taking two. Marriage takes three. This is the way God has created it. He created marriage. One really good one plus one really good one plus a third perfect one. That is the formula for a good marriage. So the marriage of your dreams is not just the two of you. It has got to be the three of us. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I've always, and some of you looking at me, and so I just say this, I am 31, so I understand that many of you have many, many years of marriage. I don't want to preach specifically from experience in marriage today. I want to speak from God's word, right? And so God's word trumps all of our experience, doesn't it? And so at the same time, you know, I do have kind of an advantage, I feel like, in the sense that I'm kind of... Um, young enough that I remember very freshly the pitfalls of being a walking 17-year-old hormone, right? Because that's all you are, 17, just one walking hormone, right? And then I also have the advantage of also I've had a, a, a mortgage and I have kids and I have bills. And so I can kind of speak to both ends, right? And so when I speak today, I, I want you to understand that, that when we're talking about premarital counseling, for instance, I've done premarital counseling, I don't know, 20 something, 25, 30 couples. And every time I go through one of the main sessions in premarital counseling, I always say that when you walk to the altar that day, you're not committing to your spouse. You're committing to the three of you together. There's a big difference. I didn't commit myself to Meredith. I committed myself to Meredith, Jesus, and Craig being in a perfect relationship with one another. That Jesus Christ desires to yoke himself to Craig, to teach Craig how to love Meredith the way he loves his church. Thank God, God's not a spectator of marriage. He's a participator. But it also means that the way I treat my spouse is the way I treat Jesus. Because he's in the midst of our relationship. He's in the midst of our relationship. So think just for a few moments when you talk about the perspective I'm preaching from is this. There's a good chance in the room you think you know what you need in your marriage. Most of us do. 
There's a good chance you'll have a temptation over the next few weeks uh, to elbow your spouse when you want to make sure that they hear what God is saying, okay? I want to give you a piece of advice. Do not elbow your spouse. Nothing ever good comes from an elbow. Maybe you're a, a guy like me and a man and you feel it's appropriate to elbow your wife when I talk about how long it takes for her to get ready in the morning. Don't do it because it'll only take longer this week than it did last week. Okay, it's just the way this works. So we mostly think, we say, I know what my marriage needs, but I want you to see what Proverbs says to that thought process. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way, I think I know what I need from my marriage. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end... It leads to death. So it is possible, or is it possible, let me ask you, that some of the things that we think we need in our marriage, God may say, no, 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 no. That's not the solution. I am the solution. It could be. Let me tell you, God says, what your marriage needs. So let's have an open mind no matter how long we've been married, no matter how long or how short we've been married or how great our marriage is. Why? Because everybody wants to have the best marriage possible. So with that being said, there's something extremely foundational godly marriage that I want to speak about today. It's this word called sacrifice. Everybody say sacrifice. I'm preaching to you a message. The title today is I do and I will die. I do and I will die. Now I want to read you two scriptures before we jump in because we're going to take Christ's example of how to love. If we're going to be loving one another the way God asks, then we need to look at God's man. We need to look at the prototype. We need to look at Jesus Christ, the God-man himself, of how he loved. And so we're going to mirror that in our relationships. So we're going to look at two passages. John 15 is the first one. Now, this is a deathbed conversation of Jesus. Now, what I mean by that is these are the final few hours of his life. John 15 slows down significantly for us, and over the next three chapters, 15, 16, 17, are going to be devoted to just a few hours of his life. 17 is the great high priestly prayer where we get insight into Jesus' prayer. But in 15, he gives us this great commandment of love. And I want you to begin reading with me in verse 9 of what Jesus tells us about the nature of love. He said, I've loved you, the disciples, even as the fathers love me. Now remain. That word is abide. It's this word minnow. It's the same word from submarine. It just means stay under my love. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. Now, he says, I've told you these things that you will be filled with joy. Notice, I didn't tell you my commandments that you might strive in the flesh and hate your life because my commands are burdensome. No, it's the exact opposite. There's no greater joy in life than to submit oneself to the commandments God gives our lives. He says, so that your joy, you be filled with my joy. Notice that. Christ's joy comes in our life when we submit ourselves to his commandments. And he says, yes, your joy will overflow, right? Your joy is an eternal condition established by the cross. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. That's why my joy is not dependent on happiness. It's not dependent on even fleeing emotions. It's dependent on Jesus Christ. Your joy would be fulfilled. This is an eternal condition Jesus established on the cross. Now look at the next verse. This is so powerful. He goes on in verse 14. I love this next text. And he says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. Catch this. There is no great... Oh, let's just pause right there, okay? Starting at that point, he gives us the commandments not to stress to perform, but our joy. And then he goes on to, to say to us, and, and I want to ask us a question. Can we all agree, based off verse 12, can we all agree that after reading John 15, that Jesus with his own mouth just said, I want you to love each other the same way I've loved you. Just give me a yes. Okay, we can agree with that. Okay, so now he's gonna tell us what that looks like. You ready? Verse 13. There is no greater love 
than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Notice that. Sacrifice. It's no greater love than sacrifice. He goes on in 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. The Bible says we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also, after the model of our Savior who considered equality with God not to be grasped, who would literally take all of the creative force and genius of God and put himself in a small fetus inside the womb of a virgin, okay? He's willing to become a fetus and a virgin. He then comes to the earth, and the Bible says he doesn't just live with a pompous, you know, arrogant head. No, he lives as a servant. He becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is our Jesus. And now he says, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, some of you may be saying, whoa, 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 Craig, John 15 is all about sacrifice. But, but 1 John is not about sacrificing for your spouse. It's about sacrificing for your brothers and sisters. Well, if that's you, let me just say up front, I'm so glad I'm not your spouse. Let me be honest with you. If you're saying, oh, that's just for brothers and sisters, but not my spouse, I don't want to be your spouse. But in just a minute, he does say that we are to love our spouse the way he loves us. He'll say it very clearly. The Bible says we lay down our lives for our spouse. Listen to me. If you're dissatisfied in your marriage, I can tell you why right now. There's not enough sacrifices in it. Let me say it another way. Satisfaction with your marriage is determined by the sacrifices in your marriage. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. It isn't looking at another person and going, well, if you were like this or you were like that or, or, or comparing your spouse to another uh, uh, hoping they'll rise up or if you would do things like that, then, man, I would let, that's not satisfaction. Let me tell you what satisfaction is in marriage. Satisfaction is this, saying I do to someone who wakes up every day of their life sacrificing for you and you get the joy of responding in the same way. That's satisfaction. No greater joy than to lay down or love to lay down your life for another. It's not gifts. There's no greater joy, no greater love, not just gifts to your spouse, not just romantic pursuit, although that's good and that's awesome, but no, the greatest love is to lay down your life for your spouse. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians gives us the greatest picture and insight that's uninterrupted in all of the Bible. It's Ephesians 5. And he gives us a passage there that many of you have seen. If you haven't, I'd love for you to see this text. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul is making an appeal to husbands. And he says, for husbands, this means love your wives. And he gives us a level at which that love should proceed. Just as Christ loved the church, and he gave up his life for her. Now, all the ladies said, Amen. Now, ladies, just an FYI, some of you might be thinking, well, it doesn't say their wives should lay down their, their lives for their husband. Yes, it does. It says it three verses early in verse 22. This is what it says. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, that, my friends, and that verse has been beaten to a pulp over time. Let me listen. We've turned that verse into a chauvinistic verse that has become, in our culture, what I call the quintessential verse for the out-of-control, abusive, strong husband who, in the midst of a knockdown showout, he they, they begin to say to one another, well, doesn't the Bible say somewhere in there that you're supposed to submit yourself to me? And she then responds, yeah, as to the Lord, so stop acting like the devil. Submit yourselves as to the Lord. Your husband's as to the Lord, okay? 
So listen to me. If you're a lady and you wanna know what submission looks like, we need to ask Jesus what submission looks like. Well, Jesus said this. He said, if you wanna keep your life, you have to lose it. He said, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That is what submission to God looks like. So submission to your husband has to look the same. It's called sacrifice. You are giving up your life for the other person. I am giving up my life for my wife. This is the issue of sacrifice. Now you need to know something about sacrifice. The number one enemy of sacrifice is selfishness, which leads us to point number one in your outline. Selfishness is the enemy of every relationship. Selfishness is the enemy of every relationship. Listen, selfishness says I'm worth your sacrifice, but nobody's worth mine. Selfishness always starts off with a spirit of entitlement. And here's what entitlement looks like in marriage. It's the belief that I am worth your sacrifice, all of your sacrifice. Let me say it another way. Entitlement in marriage looks like this. I deserve your sacrifice more than you deserve to keep it. And one of the most dangerous postures in all of marriage is to look at your spouse and say, I deserve your sacrifice more than you deserve to keep it. And here's how you know if that's your posture. Can I make it easy for us? You're not grateful for the sacrifice you're already currently receiving. Can I say that again? You know your posture is one of, I deserve yours more than you deserve to keep it if you're not currently grateful for the sacrifice you're already receiving from that spouse. The sacrifice. Selfishness is the enemy of every relationship. And folks, it's not just the enemy. It's very dangerous. Selfishness is extremely dangerous. Let me prove why, why selfishness is so dangerous. Look at James 3 and 15 and 16. He says, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. He says, such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition in a marriage, there you will find dishonor, and evil of every kind. It's not just bad to be selfish, it is demonic to be selfish. It invites evil into the marriage relationship when one is consistently selfish. It's in selfish ambition where evil disorder finds itself in fruition. It begins to flourish in that relationship. Do you understand that selfish is not only dangerous, but it brings evil. It brings disorder of every kind in our relationship. So I want to give you a couple of things about selfishness that are subpoints, if you will. Number one subpoint under this point is that selfishness always demands its own way. Selfishness always demands its own way. Here's what's crazy about that. You remember that proverb we read a couple minutes ago, Proverbs 14, 12, in a man's heart, it seems the way seems right, but in the end it leads to death. This is what that means. What's crazy is that when someone always has to have their own way, that means they're wrong more than they're right, according to Proverbs 14. I want to say that again. If somebody always has to have their own way, it's my way or the highway, hell or high water, it's my way. That means they are more wrong than they are right, according to Proverbs 14, 12. Selfishness always demands its own way. Here's one of the best parts about being married, right? It's being able to receive help when you really don't know what to do. When you don't know what decision to make, you don't know what action to take, it's to be able to receive the help, the helpmate. That's what Eve was to Adam from the outset, a helpmate. Notice she was taken as a rib from his body. She was not taken as a mandible because that means she would have headship over him. She was not taken out of the foot. He would have some leadership over her. She was taken out of the side. 
because she's the helpmeet of the man. And number one, what does the, the rib do? It protects the breath of a man. That's what the wife does anyway. She protects the breath, the soul, and the heart of her man. Okay? But notice that from the outset in Genesis. Which, let me give you another point here, single guys. I didn't think to say this, but notice if you go back and read Genesis 2 when God said it's not good for man to be alone, he said it's not good before sin entered the world. That means loneliness in our heart and wanting a spouse is not a sinful desire. It's a good desire. It's not good. And secondly, the Bible says that when he created he put a deep sleep on Adam, and the Bible says he went and he created Eve. I used to always think he created Eve next to Adam, and she, he woke up and she was there. That's not what your Bible says. It says he went off and created and brought the woman to the man, which tells me that anytime the man starts going and searching for the woman, he gets himself in trouble. That the woman was brought to the man. Was brought to the man. Was clearly brought to the man in waiting and submission and following God. It was brought to the man. Now catch this. This is, this is powerful because when we talk about the areas of selfishness in our own life, okay? Selfishness only sees me. Sacrifice only sees you. Selfishness in a relationship only sees me, but sacrifice sees none of me and all of you. I look at you. Now why would you get married if I always have to have my own way? Why in the world get married if I always have to be right? But see, sometimes we live life so selfishly before marriage that on our wedding day, when we walk to the altar and God says, kill your selfishness, Craig, it's oftentimes the very thing we hold on to going into marriage. That's why marriage is not for our happiness, it's for our holiness. It causes us to face our own selfishness. Here's the second thing about selfishness. is Selfishness demands its own timeline. So selfish is not just I want what I want, it's want, I want what I want when I want it. That's selfishness. Jesus addressed this issue of timing by his timing and his death in John, uh, Romans chapter five, verse six with the timing on the, on the cross. Romans chapter five, verse six. Did you know that Jesus knew the moment he would die and he controlled death for his own purposes? You know this, right? Because he's the death conqueror. He said, Kirk, how do you know that? Because do you know that he only hung from nine until three and he died at three? It was a Friday, it was a Sabbath, it was a high Sabbath, so that means by sundown, sat Friday night is the Jewish Sabbath. You could not crucify according to Deuteronomy law. So Jesus had to be dead. That's why the, the, the guards are getting a little upset because they're like, these guys gotta get off the cross. So they go to Pilate and say, can we go break their knees? So their knees would drip, drop, and so they couldn't breathe anymore. They'd asphyxiate, and they couldn't push up. But when they go to Pontius and ask to break their knees, he said, yeah, go break their knees, and they come back, and the two thieves are no longer, are still living, and they don't break the bones of Jesus because he's already dead. They just shove a spear in his side and blood and water flow out. Do you know if they would have come and broken his bones, you and I could pick up the Bible and we could spit on it today, use the bathroom on it? Because the Psalm said not one of his bones will be broken. And he controlled death down to his own purpose, which is the reason you don't have to fear death. You're not in bondage to the fear of death. And the Bible says he didn't die and drop his head. The Bible says in John's gospel, he nestled that chin down on that cheek, down on that chest, and then he gave up the ghost. He controlled death for his own purposes. No one takes my own life. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus is the death conqueror. He's the death conqueror. That's who he is. He controls it even for his own purposes. This is our Jesus. He's, oh, he's victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he vindicated the father by dying on the cross. And, of course, the father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. But notice what it says. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. At just, when did he come? At just the right time. At just the right time for who? For himself? For the right time for you and I. 
The Bible says in the garden, he said, if this cup pass from me, let's not my will, but your will be done. Just the right time for you and I. He says, in other words, it's be- God, if it's better for na- now for them, then I will go to the cross right now. I won't demand my own timeline. I'm not going to do what's right for me. I'm going to do what's right for them. Can you imagine, church? Come on, just just imagine creatively with me for a few moments. Can you imagine how powerful our marriages would be if our perspective, when we come home in the afternoon and our spouse has had a bad day, they've had a terrible day, and, and, and you come in and you don't really feel like hearing it right now because you're tired too, but you came home on a long day and you don't have the energy, but you come home on a rough day for your spouse and you look them in the eye, you set aside your phone, you set aside the kids for a minute, and for the next five minutes, you said, you know what, now is not a good time for me. I'm awful tired, but I can tell you that it's a really good time for you. So I'm going to be right here for you, Meredith. What is it you need from me right now? And if you did that every single day, imagine the strength of our marriages. Because selfishness is about my timeline. Sacrifice is about what's better for their timeline. What's best for them? Say, God, I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to sacrifice for myself. Listen, selfishness demands its own timeline, but sacrifice focuses on what's best for the other. Here's the third thing about selfishness. Selfishness always waits for the other to go first. Don't elbow. Selfishness always waits for the other to go first. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse? I know y'all don't fight. It's probably just me and Meredith, but if y'all just listen to me and Meredith fight for a minute, okay? Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse? And we're not talking about a knockdown drag out fight, okay? That's, I, I'm just kind of used to those early on in life. I'm not talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about you've been in a fight with your spouse, and um, you were right, and you didn't do anything wrong, which for me has happened about 1.2 times in 10 years. So, but you know this time you were completely right, absolutely no fault whatsoever. You know they are wrong. You know it, okay? You know they're wrong in this, and you adopt the mentality, I am not going first over my dead body. No, I never did that. Okay, let me just speak from my experience for a minute. So you got this mentality like, I'm not going first. I refuse to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. I'm going to wait for you to go first. I'm not saying sorry first. I didn't do anything wrong. And every minute I wait, I'm going to carry more anger and toxicity and resentment and bitterness in my heart towards you. And we just sit back and sulk. Well, look what God does when he approaches whether or not we were wrong, because he wasn't the one wrong. We were wrong first. So he could have sat back and said, I'm sorry, I'm gonna wait for you to go first. But thankfully he didn't, according to Romans 5a, because this is what the Bible says. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. While we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to get right before he stepped out to make us right. That means in our marriages, we'd be waiting for eternity if he was waiting for us to get right. We'd be waiting in eternity in a long line called H-E double hockey stick. We'd be waiting for hell. If he waited for us to get right, he waited for us to get to a... Did I just use H-E-double hockey sticks? That's what I, my, that's what I use my eight-year-old son, right? Or seven-year-old son. You know, we, he would be waiting for us for eternity if we're standing here in line saying, God, I'm not going to step out until you go first. Are you guilty of waiting to be the responder or are you the one that says, you know what, I'll go first? Because in marriage, you can always find something to apologize for, can't you? Always. And one of the most dangerous places in marriage is in the middle of a showdown with two people in the house that are waiting on the other to go first. And it's really damaging for our kids who are asking, man, I wish one of them would grow up. I'm not going first. 
I'm just sure glad God didn't take that approach with you and me, right? We'd be in a long, long line. Here's the good news about selfishness. Selfishness very easily can turn into selflessness. You know how it happens? Here's what it takes. A commitment to constantly sacrifice. Constantly sacrifice, which leads us to point number two. Sacrifice is essential to intimacy. Sacrifice is essential to intimacy. I want to read you a bunch of scriptures at this point, and here's what I want you to do with me, if you can, track with me for a few minutes and just listen. And then what I'll do is I'll come back and explain to you why we read all of that, because here's the thing, and listen to me closely. There is a place for those married folk. There is a place in your marriage called intimacy that many of us fall asleep at night wishing to experience more of. And yeah, you lay three feet from your spouse, but you feel 300 feet from them. And there is a room called intimacy. There is a place called intimacy. And all of us, if we're honest, long for more of that room. But here is the way to experience it. And I want to say to you, it's very, very black and white. It's very simple, but it's not cheap. In fact, it's the most expensive thing, but it's very simple. I want to read you some passages about the first covenant that God made with Israel. This is the covenant our God made, Yahweh made with Israel. And let's look at what happened as a result of that covenant. Would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 9? Notice what the scripture says. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read through 3. He said, that first covenant, that's the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel, had regulations for worship and it had a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, folks, is the tent of meeting that was built in the the desert for the 70 years that the Israelites were there before they went into the promised land. And in that tabernacle, there was a room. In the first room was a lampstand. In the first room, a table and a a sacred loaf of bread on the table. The room was called the holy place. Everybody say holy place. Now, there was a curtain behind the holy place, and behind the curtain was the second room called the holy of holies, or we could call it the most holy place. Everybody say most holy place. Now, jump with me down to verse 6. This is what the Bible says in verse 6. When these things were all in place, that means the, the, the articles of the tent of meeting, the priest regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. Now, low to verse 7. Notice what the scripture says. Okay? For, but only the high priest, that's the highest leader of the Jewish this time tabernacle would be the temple, ever entered the most holy place. That's the second room. And he only did it once a year. And you say, Craig, why did he do it once a year? He did it on the day of atonement when he would take the sacrifice of all of the people when they brought their goats and his own sacrifice for sin and he would enter into the room. He entered the room with bells on his tassels because if you walked into the presence of God, which is where the presence of God dwelled in the holiest of holies, if you were full of sin, you would die dead in God's presence. And so they would put a rope to him. And if they didn't hear the bells, they would pull him back out. Because if somebody went in to get him, they would die. He would instantly die. So he went in once a year to make atonement for their sin. Now notice this. And he always, everybody say always. You can't go into the holiest place unless you always offered blood. Without blood, Leviticus 17, there is no remission of sin. Blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Time out. What that means is there's two rooms in the tabernacle. Holy place, most holy place. Holy of holies. This is where the presence of the Lord rested. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Cherubim were there. Mercy seat was between it. And God's holy presence lived there. This is the place. In this day and time, only one person, one time a year, which was the high priest, 
One day a year, the Day of Atonement could be in God's presence. Now think about this right now, and let's just be grateful. Right now, this morning, you got out of your car, you walked through those doors, you came in this double door, this team was leading us in worship in the presence of the Lord. We walked right into God's manifest presence. And yet, in this day and age, it was only the high priest who could experience it one time a year. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for his sacrifice. The only way to get in was the blood of a sacrifice. Are you tracking with me? If you are, just say amen. Now let's look at the new covenant, Hebrews 10, next chapter. That was old covenant. Now under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. That's why when, they, when John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1 and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, behold, the Lamb of God who covers your sin. Because in the Old Testament, the blood covered sin. Jesus takes your sin away from you. And he throws it as far as the east is from the west in a sea of forgetfulness. This is the, this is the Lamb of God. He said it can never take away sins. But our high priest, everybody say Jesus. This is our high priest. Offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins good for all time. Then he, Jesus, whoo, this makes me shout, sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. That's what he did. Now go to, with me to verse 19. We're going to jump from 12 to 19 and look what the scripture says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly, we don't ashamedly, we don't, uh, with trepidation or intimidation, we boldly right now enter heaven's holiest of holies, most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Not because of my sin less streak this week. Not because I prayed or fasted this week. Only by the blood of Jesus. And by his death, Jesus opened up a new and a life-giving way through the curtain, which was his body into the most holy place. Listen to me, marriages. Do you understand in your marriage that that room in your marriage called intimacy, the most holy place, the place you're longing for, the place your heart's desires, it is entirely possible for you and your spouse to live there, but you must understand the only way to get in is the blood of your own sacrifice. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the blood of your own sacrifice getting in to the relationship and place of intimacy with your spouse. Intimacy was impossible without sacrifice. Sacrifice is essential to intimacy. Listen to me. A conversation without sacrifice in marriage is just a monologue. A date in marriage without sacrifice is just dinner. And listen to me. In marriage, sex without sacrifice is merely prostitution. What? In marriage, conversation without a sacrifice is just dinner or one-sided conversation. In marriage, a date without a sacrifice is just dinner. And you can tell me because I've heard it, right? Oh, sex, Pastor Craig, is the pinnacle of intimacy. You want to bet? I guarantee you it's not the pinnacle. It's part of it, but it's not the pinnacle. I guarantee you it's not. But if your perspective has gotten to a place where you see sex as the pinnacle of intimacy, then you got a problem. Because if sex is the pinnacle of intimacy, then what do you do with God? He wants you to be intimate with him, and you can't have sex with him. So it's part of it, but it's not the pinnacle. Listen to me. Sex and intimacy, let me say it this way, is not a physical act. Intimacy is a heart, mind, body, soul destination. Two people becoming one flesh. And people always think when they go get married that they've become one flesh. No, you just started the process of becoming one flesh. That's all you did on the wedding day. You started it. 
One flesh. It's a heart, mind, body, soul destination. That's intimacy. And it cannot be attained without sacrifice. You couldn't get into the holiest place on earth without the blood of goats. Do you know how crazy it is for us to think, you know what, we're gonna have the most intimate relationship and then we sit and stare at each other and refuse to make sacrifices until we have to. You can't get there. You can't get there. Let me tell you something, by the way. This is, not, this is like an addendum to this point. Intimacy does not increase when you sacrifice as a last-ditch effort. Okay? Intimacy does not increase when you sacrifice as a last-ditch effort. And I've done this many times in couples that are on the verge of divorce or maybe extreme difficult challenges in their marriage. And they say, well, Craig, I'm doing everything I know to do right now. And I'm like, well, is it because she threatened to walk out? That's not a sacrifice. That's a response that was almost too late. So you can't sacrifice as a last-ditch effort. You have to sacrifice in a preemptive desire. Does that make sense? So if you do it as a last-ditch effort, that's, that's, that's just a, a desire to keep the thing together. But once you've done it as a last-ditch effort, and now she's seeing or he's seeing that, man, you are willing to be sacrificial, now you can move into this issue of sacrifice. See, listen, the sacrifice needed for intimacy is a preemptive sacrifice. It's not a wait until I have to sacrifice. It's I will do it before I even need to sacrifice. That's called romantic. That's romantic. Doing it before I even need to. Fellas, can I talk to us? How many times do we give gifts to our wife and the only time we give gifts is anniversary, birthday, or Christmas? When was the last time we gave our wives a gift that was better than what we gave her on Christmas, birthday, or anniversary just because it was Tuesday? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The sacrifice needed for intimacy is a preemptive one, not one that waits until it's absolutely necessity or necessary. It has to be preemptive. This is what Jesus did with us. Craig, that's hard. I know. That's why it takes God in your marriage. That's very difficult. That's right. That's why it takes death. <laughs> it takes you dying and Christ living his life through you, teaching you how to love the way he loves us. Here's the third thing about sacrifice. There must be a response to every sacrifice. There must be a response to every sacrifice. Now, I'm going to be honest with you for a minute and pick on myself. I won't pick on you, let me pick on me. One of my five strengths, if you know anything about strength finders, is a strength called individualization. Now, what that means is that when I buy a gift for someone, I, I don't just like to buy any kind of gift. What I like to do is I like to read their mind, and I want to buy them the exact gift at the exact time and get the exact response I want. Well, see, that's all good individualization until it's time to give somebody the gift. <laughs> because when you give them the gift, you're expecting a certain response, okay? I know y'all never done this, so let me just expect, let me just pick on me. Have you ever given your spouse a gift? I'm talking about an extravagant gift. I mean, you had to save money, or worse, you had to sell something you liked to make the money. You sold some of your own things to make the money, and and maybe, maybe you waited a long time and you have built up the moment in your mind. You think angels are going to sing, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky, and he's going to come back, right? I mean, you think it's this moment, right? You know. You're thinking it out. I mean, I do this with my, I did this for like nine months with my proposal. You know, I'm expecting everything to work as planned. And you're given this extravagant gift. You've worked it up in your mind. The sacrifice you made was so great. Surely, surely you'll get a response and maybe you gave it to him and you did not get the response that you were looking for. And a part of you says, well, I'll never do that again. Now, you never said that, but you thought that. You didn't appreciate it. 
You didn't respond the way you should have. Let me explain something to you real quick about the difference between sacrifice and manipulation. If you're single, really perk up here. You ready? Sacrifice is a gift you give regardless of the response. Manipulation is a trick you use to elicit a specific response. I'm gonna say that again. Sacrifice is a gift you give regardless of the response. Manipulation is a trick you use to elicit a specific response, an expected response. Think about it. If the reason I'm giving the gift is to get a crazy response, that's not a gift. That's not sacrifice. That's manipulation. I will give you one that I've done, failed many times in marriage. And Meredith knows this because this has been a topic of conversation on many occasions. I know I want to go to the hunting lease this weekend. I know I need Friday and Saturday. Three kids, 10-week-old. Something's going to have to happen. We're going to need some little preemptive something going on here. So I already know it. So here's what I do. She's been looking at a nice outfit. She's been looking, whatever, let's say some sandals. So I go by the store on the way home. And I pick up that nice outfit and sandals and I walk in the house and I start lavishing my love on that precious bride of mine. I cook dinner and then I'm thinking in my mind the whole time, surely, surely. And if you get an expectation that's not been communicated and you get a response you don't like, you've harbored bitterness and revenge that you hold on for years. This is what happens in marriages because I've already started playing out the scenario in my hands. Surely, surely when I sit down at the dinner table tonight having already got a gift and having cooked some dinner, surely she's gonna say, no problem at all, right? You can go to the hunt least this weekend. Folks, listen to me. This is the reality. If, if I do that, that's not a gift. That is manipulation. Because I'm giving something to elicit a specific response. That is not sacrifice. That's not sacrifice. It's a lower form of manipulation, but it's one that we do nonetheless. How many times in 10 years of college ministry, student ministry, have I talked with couples and usually the female is so much more difficult to understand the manipulation that the, the male is using on her. Over and over and over and over again, right? Or because she's not full of the love of God, she's willing to pay a high price and let him put his hands all over her. Why? Because she's empty inside. I'm like, don't you let a dud who thinks he's a stud sacrifice your purity on the altar of his lust. Don't you do that. Know who you are. Be full of the love of God and know what God's called you. So think about this. Sacrifice says, man, I'm gonna give you all of my life. I'm, give, I'm literally giving you regardless of the response you give me. Manipulation says I only want a specific response. Now, for those of you who struggle to respond, like what I'm saying is like you, the, the spouse gives a good gift and you like, your response is like, oh, thank you. Okay, well, oh, thank you usually doesn't work really well, okay? When you give extravagant gifts, oh, thank you is like what I say to a stranger when they open the door for me. It can't be the same thing I say to my wife when she gives me an extravagant gift, okay? It's got to be a little bit more than oh, thank you. You understand what I'm saying? It has to be genuine gratitude. Hear me on this. Listen to me. If I don't respond with gratitude, my spouse may be tempted to start sacrificing more for someone else than she does for me. Listen, I didn't say she would sacrifice more for another man. It may be she sacrifices more for your kids than she does for you, and that's out of God's alignment. She will sacrifice for the person who shows deepest gratitude. It's just the way. It's just the way how you read Ephesians 5. The husband always performs for the person who gives him deepest respect. Always, always. The deepest respect. So when I'm in a relationship and I'm loving, my wife's loving me and we're loving one another, then we make it a, a dream and a goal and a desire to every day outserve one another. 
to out-sacrifice one another, not manipulate one another. Here's what's dangerous about that. Wherever you make the greatest sacrifice will be the place of greatest love in your life. Wherever you make the greatest sacrifice will be the place of greatest love in your life. And if I don't respond first with gratitude, I wanna give you real quick the three levels of response to, to a sacrifice. Can I give them to you real quick? Here's number one, acknowledge. The first response to any uh, gratitude or, or any, any sacrifice is acknowledgement. That just means like, I acknowledge it, like, thank you, babe, you bought me a pair of shoes. Now, that's a, like low-level response, but that's acknowledgement. Some of you have been working in business for a long time, and you still haven't even been acknowledged yet by an employer. And that can hurt, right, over a period of time. Not even been acknowledged. But here's the second response. It's sincere, genuine gratitude. I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done. Now, it's not a thank you. Is, is you, you all tell me, if, are these two separate things? You get a gift from your spouse. I get a gift from my wife. Thank you, babe. Or... I'm so grateful what you've done, Meredith, and I'm so thankful for the sacrifice you had to make personally to make this gift a possibility for me. It's two different things, isn't it? Two totally different things. That's genuine gratitude. Now, here's the third thing. What's the greatest response to sacrifice? Sacrifice. The greatest response to sacrifice is sacrifice, not just gratitude. And here's what's crazy. Do you know how fun marriage can be when you get in a marriage relationship where you say, you know what, I do, and then you look at each other every day of your life and say, I'm gonna beat you. Not literally. But the scoreboard is zero, zero, and I'm gonna outscore and outserve and sacrifice more for you than you do for me. Because love only works that way, right? Love only works that way. Love has to be given. Love is like hugs. Have you ever tried to take a hug from somebody? That is the weirdest thing in the world. Like you get in there and they're coming to you and then you try to back up and get it. You can, I mean, it don't even work, right? Only way a hug works is when two people, what? Give at the same time. That's the only way marriage works. But sometimes in spouses, we're, one spouse is backing up. It just don't even make sense. So love, sacrifice, it's giving of yourself. You're giving fully of yourself. The best response to sacrifice is sacrifice. Husbands, what if tomorrow we woke up? You don't have to tell your wife this, but what if you woke up and you said, you know what? I'm gonna pray right now. I'm praying for the one who created you because the one who created you, Meredith, knows you better than I do. And I'm praying to the one who created you that he'll give me the desires of your heart. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna spend the rest of my life trying to sacrifice for the desires of your heart. I'm gonna sacrifice for the needs of your life. I'm gonna take the first effort to say, you know what? I'm gonna do all that I can. It's, if you do that, that's the most imaginable, fun, imaginable game of ping pong on the planet. It's so a back and forth of sacrifice. I'm gonna out-sacrifice you today. I'm gonna out-sacrifice you tomorrow. The best response to sacrifice is sacrifice. The worst response to sacrifice is entitlement. And here's what entitlement is. Of course you did this. I deserve it. Now listen, you don't say that, but don't we feel that and believe that sometimes? Don't we? Of course you took care of the kids. You, I deserve it. I, I'm out teaching growth phases and I can do it night after night and have that same mentality for my wife. Of course you, I deserve it. I'm doing the work of the Lord. That's entitlement. That's not sacrifice. That's not sacrifice. And this is how Jesus calls us to love our wives. Now listen to me, ladies. I'm almost finished. 
I'm going to be stepping toe. We always step on toes in series on relationships, but I want you to hear me. My heart is not to step on toes. My heart is to address some things that may have become problematic in our lives. And I want to share one with you that is really on my heart for you today. I have a four-year-old girl. Her name's Marley Ann Mossgrove. And um, I have now a 10-week-old girl, Harper Grace. And um, before we had our second girl, I've always kind of desired, we were always talking about we can take it one child at a time, but maybe three kids, maybe four kids. And quite honestly, I wanted this third one to be, a, at least in my own desire, I thought it was going to be a boy. Mary thought it would be a girl, and she was right. I was wrong. But I always had this desire to have one girl so that I'd be able to talk to my girl as she grows through the stages of life. And the things I wanted to say to her, I wanted to be able to say to her, hey, babe, I have never said this to another little girl in my life, and I'll never for the rest of my life say these words to another girl. And that was always my desire as a father, to be able to have that kind of intimacy with my girl and that kind of relationship with my daughter. Now I have two that I have to have that conversation with. But that four-year-old girl knows already because she got hats and dresses for Christmas that she thinks she's a princess, right? And so before we went to bed last night, I asked her again. I said, who's everybody in our family? And she said, Dad, you're the king and Mom's the queen. And me and Hoppa, it's Hoppa. Hoppa are princesses, and Hoppa, don't y'all ever correct her, okay? If you do, I'm going to rebuke you in the name of Jesus, all right? It's Hoppa. I want it to be Hoppa for life. Her and Hoppa are princesses, and Knox is the prince. But listen to me. Although I love that four-year-old girl with all of my whole heart, she's my baby. I'll give my life for her. And I want to be intimate with her, and I want her to feel like, you know what? Daddy's so involved himself in my life as a child that I'll involve my dad in my life as a teenager. That's what I want. That's my desire. But one of the things I have to be careful of is creating a pretty little princess mentality in my four-year-old. Now, follow me just for a minute. Yes, do I believe God has someone for Harper Grace? Yes. Do I believe God has someone for Marley Ann? Yes. But I want to say, and trust me when I say this, he is not a knight on a shiny white horse. He's not a knight on a shiny white horse. He is a man that relies wholeheartedly on God and he knows his horse is dirty and he knows his own heart is even dirtier. That's the reality. And that's who she's gonna be marrying. See, if I raise my daughter to have a pretty little princess mentality, here's what happens in marriage. She becomes the queen and the husband becomes the servant. Did you do that for me? Well, no, I didn't. Why? Did my dad not tell you I'm the queen? You're supposed to do whatever I want of my women desire. And that is a dangerous one-sided relationship. That is a dangerous one-sided sacrifice that will ultimately never result in the relationship and marriage that God desires. So the best response to sacrifice is sacrifice. A dual two-way street that now is you are sacrificing for me. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I need you to do this for me. Why? Why? Well, because my daddy told you I'm the queen. It's like, long live the queen. No, it's like, queen, live alone. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. As we talk about marriage, I'll end with this thought. This word in the Bible calls marriage covenant. Everybody say covenant. Now, the way most people think about marriage is not covenant. They see it as a non-binding contract. Here's what a contract stipulates. You ready? If you do this, I'll do that. Business contract, you do this, I'll fulfill my terms of the obligation. You do this, I'll do that. A covenant doesn't say, if you do this, I'll do that. Here's what a covenant says. No matter what you do, here's what I commit to doing. 
no matter what you do, no matter how you respond, no matter what happens, no hell or high water, this is what I commit to do. And the strongest covenant there is is a blood covenant. You know who that blood covenant is with? It's when Jesus Christ or God made a covenant with us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just say, hey, I love you, Craig. Hey, I love you, church. He said, I'll, not I just love you for eternity. I will prove it by the blood of my son on the cross. That's a covenant. Regardless of how you respond, I commit to dying for you. That's what Jesus did. Now I want to read you something in Hebrews chapter 9 that is so powerful. So powerful. I want you to listen to this text. He said, when somebody dies and leaves a will, let me give you the, the verse, it's verse 16 so in your notes. When someone dies and leaves a will, now you say, Craig, why do you read the scripture? You know what the word will means? <clears throat> the word will defined is a last will and testament. That's what a contract is, okay? A last will and testament. It's all right, I don't know if the Holy Spirit's coming or, I don't know, I'll just keep going. When someone dies and leaves a contract, that means it's the last testament of will. He says, notice this, there must be proof that the one who wrote the will is dead. In other words, the, the, the contract does not fulfill its terms of obligations when the person's still living. It says a will means nothing while the one who wrote it is still living. It can be only used after that person's death. Now catch this. This is why the blood was needed to begin the first agreement between God and his people. First, now notice what Moses did outside the tent of meeting. He said, first Moses told the people every command in the law. Go to the next verse. So powerful. After he told them the command of the law, he took the blood of young bulls and he mixed it with water. He used red wool and a branch of hyssop, catch this, to sprinkle the blood and water on the book of the law and all of the people. And then he said, this is the blood that makes the agreement good. The agreement that God commanded you to follow. The agreement that he commanded you. You say, Craig, what's happening? What's happening in this text? Notice he's standing outside the tent. He says to you that, that this covenant will be marked by his blood. And Moses is standing in front of all the people, and he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Why did he do that, Craig? Because God didn't want you to know just that he was committing to you in word. He wanted you to see how much his commitment costs. It would be blood of bulls and goats and ultimately the blood of his son. And he wants Moses to show the people, this is what my covenant with you cost. And in the same way, on the day of your wedding, when you walk to the altar and you you stood in the presence of God and all those beautiful witnesses and the minister of your ceremony asked you he said do you promise to have and to hold this man or this woman from this day forward in sickness and in health for rich or for poor till death do you part and what the minister wanted to know I'm talking about the minister is will you and if you will you respond by saying I do maybe you respond by saying I will I want you to know something. When you're standing there looking at your spouse in the face and the minister wanted to know, I do, God was right in the middle of you too. And he doesn't want to know, will you forever respond, I do, and stick with it forever. What Jesus wants to know is, will you lay down your life for that person? I do, and I will die. Not just I do. I do. And I will die. I'll lay down my life for this spouse.
I'll lay down my life the way Christ loved the church. I'll submit to my husband as I submit to the Lord. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.